Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We just trust and believe that your spirit will speak. Um, your word says in Psalm 37, 5, commit your ways to the Lord and trust in him and he will act. So when we trust and obey, you promise to act. So <clears throat> we ask for obedience to your word today and trust that you will act and we believe that your spirit will speak and teach and change and transform for the glory of you, Father, through Jesus Christ as we become more like him. So we pray for a sweeping reality of sanctification in this building this morning. And not only here in this room, but in the children's room as well as they learn your word. We just ask for hearts to be softened to truth minds to be open to the reality of who you are, but not open to anything, but also wise to truth. So because of that, we stick to your words and pray that they will do as you say they will do and accomplish the task that you set them out to accomplish. And in this we trust. And in this trust, we're confident in you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so First <clears throat> Timothy 6, 16, we're at the end of 16. I, I need to stop telling you guys what I'm gonna do the next week because I always end up changing my mind during the week. And I shouldn't say I change my mind. I think the Spirit is changing my mind. And I think what the Spirit told me this week was, why don't you stop telling them about what you're going to do because you don't know what I'm going to do. So I'm going to stop telling you or try to stop telling you what's going to happen the following week. Last week I told you we were going to jump into 17, verse 17, and we're not going to do that today. Um, instead, we're going to be staying in 16 and we're going to finish this. I think we've been in these just verses 15 through 16. I think this is the fourth week we've been in these two verses because this is Paul's doxology, which is a liturgical, formal, structured form of praise and in this doxology, Paul has, does nothing but express the reality of who God is. There's nothing in this doxology about us. Nothing about anything we do or what we say or how we are to respond or anything like that. It is simply the nature, the reality, the existence, the sovereignty, the supremacy, the unapproachability, the immortality, the sovereignty, and the blessedness and the invisibility and the immutability and the honor and the glory and the praise of God. That is all Paul is addressing in this doxology. And so now we're at the end of it. And so we're starting, your, your version probably has a period there before the, before the sentence starts. So it's the last sentence of verse 16 says, to him, that's where we're starting. But there is something important I want you to understand is the importance of understanding God and how understanding his nature impacts what we believe about God and how that belief impacts what we do. Essentially, our understanding of who God is determines our joy in God. So our satisfaction in our God is dependent on our knowledge of him. <clears throat> I'll give you an extreme example. 
An atheist believes there is no God, and therefore, with such a horrendous theology, because everybody has a theology. Whether you're a believer or not, everybody has a theology. Even someone who's never thought of God or heard of God, Romans 1 says that God has made himself known and visible, made himself visible through creation, and anyone who rejects the or acknowledges God in any way, even without hearing the words about him, has suppressed the truth. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. So even, not just an atheist, but anyone who hasn't even heard of God, they are theologians. We are all theologians. We all have a theological concept of who God is. And the worse our theology about God, the less we will enjoy him. An atheist has no joy in God because they don't believe he exists. A Christian has more joy in God because we believe he exists. And the more we know what he's like, the greater we realize he is. He doesn't become greater. He always is infinitely great. But as we learn more about him, our awareness of his greatness, of his supremacy, of his sovereignty, of his grandeur, of his unfathomability, of his unapproachability, becomes richer to us. And in the richness of the reality of who God is, we become more satisfied in him. And the greater we are satisfied in God, the more he is glorified in us. So, not only does God's glory in us have a dependence on our joy in him. But so also the things we do in our life, the actions we take, are dependent on what we believe about him. So our understanding of who God is, it determines our joy in him. It determines our worship and praise to God and determines whether God is glorified in those things. If knowing the truth about God were not important to our worship and to our praise and to our glorifying of him, then these truths about God's nature would not be in scripture. But they are. So they are there to inform our minds and our hearts and such informing will transform who we are and what we do, which will determine whether God is glorified in us or how much God's glory is magnified through us. Basically, what you believe about God, what you believe about God affects the way that you live. I've been saying that for 20 years. What you believe about, it's such a simple statement. It's hard to argue against, but it's just so, it's so simple and so powerfully true. What you believe about God affects the way you live. It affects the way you feel. It affects the way you think. This is the example I've used probably 10 times from this pulpit. A mother is pregnant and she loses her baby in the womb. How she response to discovering that loss will depend on who she believes God is. Her confidence or belief or faith or knowledge about God will determine her response. It will determine her feelings. It will determine her devotion. It will determine whether she sins in her response or is righteous in her response or to what degree she might, be, she might sin or be righteous. All of those things are factored by the reality of her knowledge of who God is. 
If she does not believe that babies go to heaven when they die in the womb, she will be devastated. But if she is confident that God saves unborn children, then she will be elated in the midst of her sorrow. Through the tears, there will be a fundamental joy that upholds her because of her knowledge of Scripture and of who God is. So that's just an example of, and I use that example because it's extreme and it's an emotional example. So you can see that the truth itself isn't determined by feelings and mood. It's determined by truth. It's determined by Scripture. It's determined by God. And what we believe about God from Scripture will determine how we live our lives, what we think, and how we feel. So... If you want to live a life that honors him, we must know him correctly and truthfully and as fully as we can. So, end of verse 16. Paul writes, To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, the Greek word here for honor is used 40 times in the New Testament. And it's mostly translated as the word honor, like it is here. But sometimes it's translated to English as money or proceeds. Because the Greek word here ultimately uh, is used to ascribe value and worth. In this case, value and worth are attributed to God. That's what that word honor means, is that God is valuable and worthy. And since the context is about the worth and value of God himself, what Paul really means by saying to him be honor is God is infinite value and worth. God is infinite value and worth. Notice I did not say God has infinite value and worth. He does have infinite value and worth. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying God is infinite value and worth. Just as money has value and worth, money in our culture, well, in any culture because, well, money's different. Currency has value and worth in our culture. So also God himself is like our money. He is the value meaning all that is valuable in existence is measured by him whose existence is infinite worth. So we'll kind of circle back to that. The word eternal is self-explanatory. It means without beginning or end. And that of God, which is without beginning or end, is, as Paul says, his dominion. Now, dominion means power or might. It's often translated in scripture as strength, might, or power. But the most common English word used for this Greek word is better or superior. Which means that this word dominion carries a meaning of superiority or as I like to say, supremacy. That's ultimately what it's getting at, that dominion conveys this idea that God is ultimately supreme over all things. But it's not conveying this idea of possession of all things, but that he is supremacy. Paul is attributing to God all the glory for his infinite value and worth as, being, as, a, as a being of superior and supreme power. 
And since his supremacy is eternal, because he calls it eternal dominion, what this means is that God is infinitely superior and supreme. Now, just think about that for a second. I know we've talked about this the last few weeks, so I don't want to be redundant and repeat things that we've already been talking about. But this idea of infinite superiority or infinite supremacy, like it, that does not just mean that the supremacy of God, which would mean his unimaginable greatness, rule and reign over all things, That is not only eternal. It is not just that he always has been supreme over all things. It is not that he is supreme over all things or that he will always be supreme over all things, but that the idea of supremacy itself, the reality of God's grandeur, greatness, power, might, value, worth, and strength, and superiority, all of that itself is infinitely deep. In fact, to say infinitely deep is erroneous in and of itself because infinity can't have depth because depth would imply that there is some measurable form of that thing and you cannot measure his supremacy or his superiority or his power or might or strength or his value or his worth. It is, as we talked about last week, truly immeasurable, truly unfathomable, impossible for our feeble fallible and erroneous minds to comprehend. So it's not just that his supremacy goes on forever, it's that the supremacy of God itself is a reality that is too incomprehensible for humanity. And yet God gives us these words to describe himself and in doing so, it's all we got. <laughs> so, so we use them and we talk about them, but what we often don't talk about is how these words describe a God who is indescribable. That, that alone is, is worthy of our praise. Like that, that piece of God, that information about God, that reality about a God who is, and I know I said this last week, and I, I, I hate to go back, but I just, I think it's so valuable and so important. We all, I think, and not everyone's the same. I, by the way, I just learned this recently that there are people who like think differently than I do, obviously, but like, um, uh, I learned that like some people, when they think in their heads, they don't actually use words. They don't think in words. Like they don't have conversations in their head where words are going through their brain. And I'm like, what do, how, how do you think? What's, when you're thinking, what's going through your head? And there are people who can't imagine visualized pictures in their head. And I'm like, where are these people? <laughs> so some people think in pictures. Some people think in ideas. Some think people think in words. We all vis- so we all have different ways of visualizing or contemplating or formulating some concept or image or reality, right? Which means all of us probably, there's probably a variety of different ways that all of us conceive of God in our mind. And so some of us maybe picture God, visualize him. You know, and I've shared, you know, maybe a throne and he's an old guy with a white gown and a, you know, a scepter and he's got a long beard and long white hair. And he's like, I'm God the Father, which is totally false because God is not a man. Um, he's a spirit. And so, <clears throat> like, but, but 
we're humans and we can't fathom an unfathomable God whom is spirit. And because of that, we try to formulate a picture of him in our head. And so we create a false image of God in our mind, which is idolatry, by the way. And, and it's like we're kind of stuck with that idea. And so what God has done is by the beauty of his grace and mercy and love and goodness and kindness, he has made himself knowable, visible, and lovable through Jesus Christ. So now, because of Jesus, we have a man, a human. Now I can grasp a human, a face. I saw a picture the other day. It was two pictures of Jesus. One was like, he looks genuinely Jewish, and they were trying to like create a picture. You know, Someone tried to draw a picture of him uh, as a real Jewish man. He looks so authentic. And then there was like the, you know, the white Jesus with the blue eyes and the long flowing blonde hair from like the movies. And it's like, which one is really Jesus? And I'm like, neither. So I don't like, and, and um, you know, like the, what's that show called? The Chosen. They have the actor who plays Jesus. Um, when, I see, when I see that guy, I'm just like, oh, it's Jesus. And my brain's like, no, that's not Jesus. Stop visualizing the face of Jesus. But there's, and there's a reason I don't want to visualize his face. Because in 1 Corinthians Paul actually talks about the beauty of the anticipation of seeing him face to face. It's going to be wonderful because Paul says right now we see him in a mirror dimly, right? We can't really see in the first century mirrors were dim. They're nothing like our mirrors today. They were polished and dented down bronze and silver or whatever. And so you couldn't see yourself in a mirror back then the way you do today. So their idea of a mirrored reflection was different. And we look forward to the day when we get to see Jesus's real face. And because God is so gracious, we get to see Christ face to face. Now I have an image of a man whom is my God, who I get to worship and I can visualize him. I can attain to him in my mind. God, who is superiorly, supremely, infinitely beyond your comprehension, who is transcendent beyond all human reality or thoughts, has decided by his grace to, to pierce through transcendence into our reality and make himself known and make himself near to us. That is the gospel. That through Christ, we get God, right? Gospel, good news. Gospel, what's the good news? The good news is we get God. That's the gospel. God is the gospel. And the gospel is we get God in Christ. We get Christ. That's the beauty of his grace. And so when I say God is infinitely superior and supreme, that is not just a Passover statement. That is not just like a, oh yeah, great. And you pull that out of a systematic theology book. God is infinitely superior and supreme. That, is, that concept alone is a lifetime of research and diving into that will never cease to satisfy. Now, in our verse, verse 16, the English says, to him be. And it might seem to you like Paul is telling us that we ought to give him this honor and eternal dominion, right? To him be honor and eternal dominion. It kind of sounds like Paul's saying, hey, now that we're done with this doxology, let's make sure we give him, so to him be, so we give to him 
honor and eternal dominion. It might sound that way because of the word to that is there. It feels like we're delivering something to God. And we could kind of, if that were the case, we would kind of summarize this last sentence, the rest of this verse that we're going through. You kind of summarize it as the meaning being give God all the glory. Though that is a truth, that is not the truth that is written here. The word to is not even present in the Greek. There is no Greek word for to in this text. It is implied by the translators. So verse 16, we back up to the beginning of verse 16, starts by saying who. And that who he's referring to is God the Father. And he says, who has alone, who, I'm sorry, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And then right after that last word see in the Greek immediately says him. It doesn't say to him, it just says him. So the translators put the word to in there so that as we read this in English, we understand that the him Paul is referring to is the who that he's been referring to throughout verse 16. So the to him does not mean we are delivering something to him, such as praise or glory or worship. Paul is not telling us to make sure we ascribe to him honor and eternal dominion. Now, that sounds like a weird thing to say at a pulpit. Paul is not telling us to ascribe. It's not that Paul's telling us not to do it. It's just that that's not what Paul is saying here. He is just telling us that God is these things. There's nothing in here about what we should do or how we should respond or what we should think and feel. It is strictly doxologically an expression of the nature of who God is. He is these things. God is these things. He is not saying that God has these things. And that is because of the word be in this text. So you got to him be. Now that word, just like the word to, is also not present in the text or in the Greek. So if you were to read the original Greek word for word of this part of the verse, the verse is him, honor and dominion, eternal. Amen. Him, honor and dominion, eternal. Amen. That's the right order of Greek words as Paul wrote them. There's no two. There's no B. And the inclusion of two and B, they are implied, so translators added them so that we could understand the meaning of this verse in English. Now, the context of the verse is not about what God does or what we do to God, but rather the context is solely about who God is. It is about his nature. It is about his attributes. It is about his character. It's about his reality. It's about his existence. It's about his being. Hence the word to him, be, because he is Right? Be is a verb, which means a state of being, and this is God's state of being, honor and eternal dominion. So honor and eternal dominion 
are not things we give to God, nor are they things that God does, or are they things that God takes. Honor and eternal dominion is what God is. He is value. He is worth. He is power. He is strength. Because when we talk about God in terms of possessing those things, which he does possess those things, and we can say he possesses those things, but we have to understand his possession of those things is because he is possessing that which, man, which he himself manifests of himself. The things that he possesses are things of himself. And if we don't clarify that reality and that truth that the things such as value, worth, power, strength, superiority, and supremacy, if those things are not who he is and his possession of them doesn't come from the manifestation of those things from himself, then that would mean those things that he possesses are outside of him. And he has to go get them and bring them to himself and then possess them, which is impossible because outside of God, nothing exists. So, he does possess power, might, value, worth, superiority, but not as extensions of himself that he holds to himself, but as manifestations of himself that come from his natural or supernatural state of being. And that is an important distinction because we want to be clear about what we are to do with this verse. Like I've said, this text doesn't tell us to do anything. This isn't about us. It's for us, but it's not about us. So we're kind of left because, you know, most scripture kind of gives you some direction, right? Like, hey, make sure you do this and do that or don't do this or don't do that. But this text gives us no direction. So as believers, we do want to be doers of the word, as James says. Don't just be hearers, be doers. We don't want to just hear this truth about God and go, cool, see you later, and then it doesn't change your life. This, this information should transform the way that we live. It should affect what we do. So we're going to look at Bible verses as Christians and always ask ourselves, well, what do I do? What do I do with this truth? So it's an, it, it, there is this important distinction about this text being about the state of the being of God. And we want to understand that distinction so that we can know what to do with these words. We're so quick as people, I think, to jump right into the doing, though. So, like, like I just said, James tells us, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers of the word. So we want to be doers of the word, but guess what? You can't do until you hear, right? You need instruction to know what to do. You need understanding to know what to do. You don't go to a new job and just start working with no knowledge or training or, or clarity about what your job even is. You have to learn, and then you do. And then as you do, you learn through doing as well. But you have to first learn through hearing. And I think as Christians, and, and I think partially, partially this has a lot to do with our culture. Because in an American culture, we have been fed uh, this idea of an American dream, which I think the idea of the American dream has fundamentally changed over the last 20 years. But, but 
the American dream, which is essentially, I think at the core of the American dream, whether it was 50 years ago or today, at the core of the American dream is you can do whatever you want. That's always at the basis of the American dream is freedom for you to do what you want. And because of that, we are driven. We're a culture that is driven to succeed. We're a culture that is that is told never to give up, never stop, always go, keep going, make much of yourself, make as much money as you can, accomplish as many things as you can. No one can stop you. No one can tell you no. Go get yours. That's the message that we receive from our culture. And it's all about self-autonomy and self-agency that I am free to do as I please which is the opposite of the message of Jesus Christ, which is submit yourselves to God and become a slave to Jesus Christ. And that is where true freedom is found. But in our culture, we're told, go get that freedom yourself. You have all the freedom you need to go get what you want, to go be who you want to be. And, you know, 30 years ago, the message was you can be whatever you want to be. Well, 30 years later, people decided they really can be whatever they want to be. Like, people are like, I'm a cat. And then they like literally like change their bodies into cat bodies like how that is so extreme 30 years ago if you just said hey in 30 years uh men are going to be women and women are going to be men and no one's going to know what they are and people are going to think they're animals and you'd be like that's nuts we're never going to get that far but that's where we're at because you can be whatever you want to be and that kind of culture that self made mentality that you have freedom to go do whatever you want has produced in our culture a doing culture. We are go-getters, doers. I can do whatever I want. And so we are a driven nation. Because you go to other cultures and you'll notice there's a lot of other cultures in the world where people like don't do anything. They're very chill, you know, super low-key, They don't like bother. They're not ambitious. And that's just the way they are. And they love it. And that's who they are. And that's their culture. And in America, we're like, no, run over anybody to accomplish your goals. And if they're in your way, then that's their fault. You go get yours. That's the American message. So we are doers. And even if if we don't believe in that messaging, it is so inundated in our culture, it's hard to avoid and it's hard to not let it sink into your reality and the way you think and operate. And so we read Bible verses and we go, what do I do? What do I do? Okay, good. Now what do I do? And I think Paul would say, right now, nothing. Stop being so quick to find an action that you can do. And just take a step back and take a moment to absorb what I just told you. To absorb this truth about God. We are so quick as humans to jump into the doing part without taking time for the enjoying part. This doxology is not intended primarily to make you do something. If there is an action for you to do in this text, that action, the primary response that you should give or do to this text is enjoy. Enjoy God. Meaning Paul is less interested in telling us to give God glory and is more interested in telling us about his nature so that we would enjoy him.
And Paul's confident that if we understand, so if you want to know what the doing part is, Paul's confident that if we understand his nature and his being, then the supernatural product of that knowledge will be the doing the praise and the honoring and the glorifying and the obedience and the sanctification that brings glory to his name. Because if we're told, well, now go do this, well, what we could do then is just skip the information about the nature of God. So if Paul ended the doxology and said, now praise the Lord, you could skip the doxology and just go, oh, Now, I get, okay, the command here is praise the Lord. I'm going to just praise the Lord. All right, I'm going to sing songs. I'm going to praise him with my words and my life. And I'm going to praise God. I'm just going to do the action. I'm commanded to praise, so I'm going to praise him somehow. And so if we've given the command, it's easy to skip over the information and jump right to the action. It's a, and so the, the information here is indicative, and the commands are imperative. Indicative means factual. It's usually represented by a verb that is stating some sort of fact, okay, versus an imperative verb that is telling you to do something. And so we skip the indicative and jump right to the imperatives. And Paul leaves us here with no imperatives, no commands, no direction, just the indicative, just the facts, just the information about who God is. Because I am certain that Paul is certain that if we absorb and enjoy the reality of who God is in verses 15 and 16, the natural product of that will be all the right doings in your life. Praise will be the product. Worship will be the product. Magnifying his glory in your holiness will be the product. Loving Jesus will be the product. Devotion to Christ will be the product. Time in his word will be the product. Your understanding of his knowledge will be the product. And as you understand through your knowledge and growth and the knowledge of who God is, you will love him more and all of these affections and understandings and your theology will develop and grow and your affections for God will become overwhelmingly joyful and the idea of obeying God will be such a satisfaction to you. The doing is the product. It doesn't need to be commanded in this context. There's plenty of other places in Scripture, including the next verse, where commands are given to us that clarify what we should or should not do. Here, Paul's taking a break from commands, and he's saying, just enjoy God. Because that is... Christianity. That is Christianity. Do you realize how big of a statement that is? Enjoy God. That is Christianity in a nutshell. Because that's what the gospel is. The gospel is God saying, here is me. Enjoy. Because God's ultimate aim is what? His glory. Right? And in God being glorified, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So us enjoying him magnifies his glory the most it can in your life. So take a break from the doing. Take a chill pill. Stop trying to achieve God's pleasure in the way that you behave. And instead, sit back, open your Bible, and just enjoy him. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what, that's what, that's why I want you in the word. 
I mean, do I want you to be theologically rich and doctrinally sound? Yes. Do I want you to know things? Yes. Do I want you to know what to do in certain situations? Yes. Do I want you to grow in wisdom? Yes. I want all these other things for you in your life. I know God wants those things for you too. But if we don't start with the idea of enjoying God, we will skip that and we will jump right to the actions, right to the functionality of Christianity. And instead of be, and we will become an organization instead of the organism of Christ, which is his body that loves him intuitively and connectively because we are a part of the organism that is Christ. He's the head, we're the body. We are connected to him. It's impossible for the body to survive without itself. Christ and us survive together. We survive attached to the head, Jesus Christ. And so if we aren't taking time to enjoy that, to enjoy him, then we have left the purpose of our existence and we have jumped right into function and we become an organization that does activities because they like to. And from those activities, we'll create traditions and we will hold those traditions higher than anything else, just like the Pharisees did, just like the Catholic Church is doing, and just like many other churches and many other Christians and many other non-Christians and all kinds of people always do is hold to their traditions that came from the function of doing the things they're told to do because they skipped the enjoyment. And so it's not, it's no longer a pleasure to serve God. It's a function to serve God. And that is legalism. And it's a false gospel. So we have to slow down. Absorb this doxology. And I would encourage you, if you haven't heard the last three sermons, go back and listen to them. Not because me, but because of the text and what it means. And absorb the reality of who God is expressed throughout this doxology so you can actually take time to just enjoy him. And if you don't know what it means to enjoy God, if you're like, okay, I get it, Mark. I got to enjoy God. Now, how? Tell, how, tell me how to do it. You notice how we are just so innately fixated on this thing that we have to, this idea that we have to do something. So I'm going to tell you how to do it, how to enjoy God. It's really simple. I'm guessing you've heard this before. Read your Bible and pray. Like, read your Bible, pray every day. You guys remember that song? I think I've sang that song like 30 times <laughs> at this pulpit because it's such a good song. And when I was a kid, I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, read your Bible and pray every day. And then I, when I, you know, as a pastor, I'm like, man, if those are the two most important things you can do in your life. Read your Bible and pray every day. And, and, and I, I know it sounds so... Reading your Bible every day and praying every day just sounds so functional, right? Isn't that what I was just preaching against? The functionality. We want the heart. We want the reality of God. We want the enjoyment of God. We want to see him for who he is and, 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 and enter into his presence. Like that's what prayer is and that's what being in the word is. It's being in the presence of God. And God is always present. He's never not present. That's the promise he repeats more than any other promise in all of scripture. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, do not fear. So he's always present. The enjoyment of his presence is on us. And so if you want to enjoy his presence, you got to go to him. You got to be in the word and you got to be in prayer. And that is what we call communion with God.
And it is in communion with God that you will find your greatest joy. And from there, he will teach you how to make everything else in life a great joy in him. Now, there is an important principle in this truth. It seems counterintuitive to tell you not to give praise to God or glory to God because this text isn't telling us to do that. But there are times when that is necessary to not give God praise or glory. Let me explain. Before you give God glory, it is vital that we are giving him proper glory. And that is why this text is so important. That's why doxology is so important. That's why all of scripture is so important. It is, it is vital that we're giving God the proper glory, not just what we think would glorify him, but what he says glorifies him. So that's proper glory, that we are magnifying his glory and giving him praise for that which he truly is. I'll give you an extreme example to help you understand what I'm saying. If I told a feminist woman that God is a woman... And she responded to that by praising God with her words for God being a woman. That doesn't honor God. That doesn't honor God because God is not a woman, nor is he a man, he's spirit. So it is impossible for us to exalt God for things that do not actually glorify God. We could attempt exaltation, but it doesn't actually glorify him. So it's not possible for us to glorify God for things that he actually is not, for reasons that are not true of God, which does not magnify his glory, because glory, this is really important, listen, glory is the manifestation of holiness. Glory is the word we use to define the visualization, the expression, the manifestation of God's holiness. So when God does holy things, which is always, he is visibly seen as holy through the thing that he does. And the result of that expression of holiness is what he describes as glory. So when we talk about us glorifying God, what that really means is be holy. When you do a holy thing, let's say you obey a command in scripture with the, with the righteous heart, your, your, your motivation is godly, your, your actions are godly, and everything you do in that particular obedience is just almost perfect. You know, and, and, and you do that, that glorifies God because what you're doing is you are revealing to the world The holiness of God that is in you that you are now manifesting out of you, which is actually the Holy Spirit manifesting his holiness out of you. And that manifestation of the holiness of God that's in you that you've now shown the world through your holy behavior or obedience or goodness glorifies God. It exalts the holiness of God. Essentially what it means by glory is God is seen. God is visualized. God is experienced. God is manifested so that he can be attained or understood or seen. And that's why we use the word glory. If you praise God for something he is not, you are not magnifying his holiness. You are magnifying a lie and therefore not glorifying him 
or not exalting his holiness because you're exalting a misrepresentation of God, which is not holiness and therefore not glorifying God. Now, does God get glory essentially in everything through his sovereignty? Yes, but that's a discussion for another day. So (laughs) simply telling people to just glorify and exalt and praise God doesn't mean anything unless we are glorifying and exalting and praising him for who he truly is. Now, I have to give you this caveat, okay? Because it's so important. None of us know all the truths about God perfectly. So in essence, none of us can properly glorify God because we can't, none of us can perfectly manifest his holiness because none of us are perfect and none of us know everything about God. Okay, so there are Christians out there who maybe I believe um, that God is sovereign over human will and someone else believes that we have free will. And, and I would say, well, I can glorify God more in my understanding of God because I think that God is sovereign over my will. And that person uh, believes that, God, that they have free will. And so we have different gods, or not different gods, but we believe different things about the nature of God. One of us is either, either one of us is right and the other one's wrong, or we're both wrong. We can't both be right. So we're either both wrong or one of us is wrong. So one of us is going to glorify God more. You, you can't tell me that that person who believes the opposite of me doesn't glorify God. That, that person can worship God for believing that they have free will. They can worship God and say, thank you, God, for giving me free will. If that theology is wrong and they worship God for that theology, they still can glorify God in that. And they're still believers. It's not like they're unsaved because of that doctrine or that belief. And, and they can still glorify God even if they're incorrect, even if their theology is wrong. What I'm getting at is our theology doesn't have to be perfect to glorify God because there's more at work than just our knowledge about his nature. There's the affection in our heart. God knows our heart. There's the amount of faith and belief that is attributed to those feelings and thoughts about God. There's so many more other factors to, contrib- that, that, to consider when we think about what glorifies God and the way we live and think and what we know about God. So there's this important caveat that we, we just, we can't know everything about God. So our way of glorifying God is always going to be tainted by our sin, which is... the The best example of that is the entire Old Testament. Because Israel tries to glorify God at times, and most of the time they don't. Why? Because they're trying it on their own. They're trying to do what God tells them to do, and they can't. So what's the difference between the Old Testament Jews and the church today? What's the difference? The Holy Spirit. God made a promise in the Old Testament. He's like, I'm going to show you guys how to follow me. I want you to follow me without me in you. That's Israel's purpose. And you're going to experience life trying to obey God. Here's my law. Follow it. You can't. That's the purpose of the law, to show you that you can't. And without my spirit in you, you guys fail on a consistent basis. And as you fail over and over and over again, I am going to drop these beautiful little promises in your history, Israel, where I'm going to say, don't worry. I promise there's a solution to this problem. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. I've got an answer. I've got a Messiah. I've got a promise. It's going to be better. I've got a way. And he tells us in Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, there will be a day, Israel. Israel, I know you can't do this. You don't have my spirit. You cannot follow my commands. You don't know my law. I mean, you know my law, but you don't know how to follow my law. And you constantly disobey me. But there will be a day when I will put my spirit in you and cause you to obey. Because without me, 
causing it. You can't do it. And if you need evidence, read the entire Old Testament. And what do we get instead? We get the Holy Spirit in us who acts the holiness of God out of us. And now we're capable of obeying God. But it's still not us. We're just like Israel in the Old Testament. Completely incapable of obeying God. The difference now is he has put his spirit in us and his spirit does the work. The work that he says in Ephesians 2.10, God had prepared before the foundation of the world for you to walk in. So though it is impossible for us to be perfect in our glorifying of God, we do have the perfect God glorifier himself in us. We're not left to our own. Our praise to God, if we understand him as the way Paul describes him here, should be genuine product of our knowledge of his greatness and grandeur and supremacy and sovereignty, making our exaltation and praise of him something that magnifies his holiness or glorifies him. So it is not enough just to praise God. We must praise him in truth. And Jesus said that when he described the Father in John 4, 24. He said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We often use that verse to just describe that God is spirit and that we got to worship him spiritually because he is spirit and we're also spiritual, but God is only spirit. And we often kind of forget this word truth at the end. When Jesus adds truth to this phrase, it completely changes the nature of our worship. Now we're not allowed to just worship him in spirit, but our spiritual worship, worship must be done in truth. Meaning, just as it is important to give a spiritual God spiritual worship, so also it is important to worship God in truth. Our worship of him must be in things that are true of him. Or they don't magnify his holiness and thus do not glorify him. God's holiness, holy is the best word to describe God. It is the one attribute or characteristic that determines all other characteristics and attributes. God is loving, God is just, God is kind, God is patient. We can describe God in a, several different ways as scripture describes him. But all of those things are filtered through his holiness. God's love is holy. God's patience is holy. God's kindness is holy. Holy means perfect, set apart, right? It is perfect. It's just no better word for holiness than perfect. And everything about God is perfect. Every attribute of God is perfect. Every characteristic of God is perfect. Holiness is the best word to describe God. So when we talk about glorifying God, we're talking about any expression of any aspect of any attribute or characteristic of God being expressed. Because whether it's his love or his justice, whether it's his vengeance and his wrath or his kindness and his mercy, no matter what it is, it is an expression of his holiness in that particular attribute. And as that attribute is expressed, his holiness is seen in a variety of different ways. And as that holiness is seen, God is glorified. Which is why God is glorified in the death of unbelievers just as much as he is glorified in the salvation of those who trust in him. Because one is his justice and his vengeance and his wrath on sin and another is his grace and his mercy and his kindness to those who don't deserve it. Both, all, are holy attributes of God that magnify his glory. 
Worshiping God for something that he is not does not magnify his glory, but what it does is it reveals our fallibility, our fallible nature, our inability to worship God without his help from his Holy Spirit, whom we need. The Holy Spirit teaches us the nature of God because the Holy Spirit knows the depths of God's mind and heart. According to 1 Corinthians 2.11, which says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So now we're given this, we are now given the same spirit who dwells within us to help us understand truths about God so that our worship is properly informed. And Paul tells us that in the next two verses, 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13. He says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So the spirit of God, who's the only existing one who knows the depths of God is the same spirit of God who is in us. I know you know that already. That on the surface doesn't blow your mind. But if you take a moment to absorb the depths or the infinite reality of what I just said, The Spirit of God who knows the depths of an infinite God is in you. Like, I am not, (laughs) I'm not one of those people who are like, you're special and you're, you know, (laughs) I'm not one of those like saucy motivational speakers, you know. But let me just say, you got something in you that is a power that is incomprehensible, unimaginably powerful, beyond what your brain can fathom. What is in you is not just a what, but a who. And he is the God of the universe. So though I don't like to be all touchy-feely, motivationally driven, I will say this. You have the capability of doing amazing things because God can do amazing things. And it's not you. It will never be you. You will never get the glory. You will never get the praise. And if you do, it's wrong. You will never be the one who's doing it. It is all Jesus in you. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2.20. It's not you. It's Christ in you. It's the Spirit of God in you, whom is a, in, an infinite God of infinite power and infinite value and infinite worth and infinite joy and infinite satisfaction and infinite supremacy and grandeur and sovereignty who can operate your life to his glory and all he says is let me submit to me and I will do amazing things through you. Then our transformed minds, 
When the Spirit is teaching, the truth is revealed. Okay, we need the Spirit to teach us these truths. And when he's teaching, the truth is revealed. Our minds are informed with truth about who God is and what God is. And as our minds are informed, they then become transformed into the mind of Christ, making us know truth as Jesus knows truth. And we are transformed closer and closer daily into the likeness of Christ in character and holiness. Then our transformed minds inform our hearts the emotional, thoughtful, sensitive center of our being and soul, our transformed minds inform our hearts and impact our affections and our feelings for God, thus also transforming our hearts to love God from, really important here, from a genuine understanding of who he is. And that process is what we call sanctification. A lifelong learning about God that is always being informed and transformed by the Spirit into holiness. And our holiness is just a manifestation of His holiness from His Spirit coming out of us. So, what are we to do with this truth? Well, I think think it should be clear by now that uh, what you should do with this truth is know God better. Know God better. And we can only know God better from Scripture, given that, that, is, that, that the Word of God is His chosen form of communication to us. And if you want to know God better, you can't only read about Him or study about Him or learn about Him through Scripture. You also must converse with Him. You must talk with Him. You must commune with Him. You must meet with Him because that is what He commands us to do. That's how relationships work. And without communion, relationships don't work. He commands us to pray. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 9, pray. (laughs) Acts 2, 42, the early church devoted themselves to prayers. Paul commands us in Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. Prayer is not an add-on to your knowledge. It is a requirement because knowledge of God is enhanced with the experience of communion with God. The knowledge of God is enhanced with the experience of communion with God. Prayer is where our knowledge meets God and is strengthened into affection and love and devotion and emotion. If you ever show me a theologian who is all knowledge and no feeling, I will show you a dead Christian. That is worthless. Theology, doctrine, knowledge without heart is meaningless. You have to feel God. I know so many incredibly smart Christians who are just like, oh, feelings are not. Feelings will trick us. No, feelings will trick you when your knowledge is wrong. But if your knowledge is informed by Scripture, your feelings can be right and they can be real and they can be powerful and they can move you and motivate you when they were balanced appropriately with the knowledge of Scripture. Feelings are not a bad thing. They are a powerful thing. Where do you think feelings came from? God feels. That's why you feel. He created you with feelings because he made you like himself. How do you think he feels when you disobey him? How do you think he feels when you pray to him? How do you think he feels when you 
desire him? How do you think he feels when you read his word? How do you think he feels when you trust in him? How do you think he feels when you ignore him? God has real feelings. Scripture tells us that our sin can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can go, oh, this hurts. What are you doing, Mark? This is not who you are. It's not who I made you to be. That's who you were. Get out of that. And he convicts. And he draws us with feelings because when you sin, you know what it feels like. It hurts you. In the moment, it might feel good for a moment, but later you feel guilty, you feel shame, you feel terrible. And then you remember the gospel and you go, I wasn't made to feel those things. I was made to be free from those things. I am forgiven for that sin. I'm going to follow Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is producing that in you as he develops these emotions in you that are expressed back out of you to God for his glory. If you want to enhance your worship and praise to God and you want to enhance your joy in him and in this life, then you must get more knowledge. And from that will come a a, a fountain and a river and a plethora of other wonderful, beautiful, joyous experiences with God. You already have the fullness of Christ in you. You have the fullness of him in Christ in you. So access is not our problem. Our problem is our willingness to take advantage of that access. Ephesians 3.12, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Christ. Memorize that verse. Memor- I'm giving you a command. Memorize that verse. It is so important to your life. In Christ, we have boldness and access to God with confidence through our faith in him. If there's ever a moment you doubt your relationship with God, read that verse. We have full access to all the knowledge and power of him that we need. Doesn't mean we always get to use it, but the access is there. And as our knowledge increases, our satisfaction in him will increase, raising our joy in him, which enhances our worship and praise of him, which glorifies him. So, unlike JFK, who said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. One of his famous quotes. I'm going to take that quote and I'm going to flip it. I'm going to put it in the context of this verse. And I say, ask not what you can do for God. Ask, who is God and what is he like? And when you pursue that question, soak in it. Dwell in it. Absorb him. As we seek That answer, our knowledge of the nature of God will increase and so will our affections for him supernaturally increase. And from the joy and pleasure of knowing him, our love for him will be enriched, which will provide us with motivation for holiness, a hatred for sin, devotion to Jesus, and a desire, a willingness, and the ability to truly follow him in this lifelong testing of our faith called sanctification. And it all starts with knowing God. Let's pray.
We love you, Lord. We cannot know you unless you make yourself known. Jesus said that twice in John 6. We can only know the Father if the Father draws us to him. We love that truth. You've drawn us to you, and you've made yourself known. You've manifested your truth. You've given us your word. We have everything we need. We have your spirit in us. We have your word before us. We have your presence with us. We are not left without. Now motivate us to find you, to seek you, to learn about you, to know you, and to enjoy you forever so that in our joy in you, you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.